Today we're on uh, uh, the lesson on Paul's Hebrew training. This is our fourth lesson. Um, we've had a good overview lesson. Uh, Dr. Stephen Trammell gave an overview of Paul's scriptures. Then last week we talked about Paul's Greek heritage and training. Um, I want to start this week by saying uh, Mexico. Y'all recognize it? I love Mexico. My love for Mexico started as a child eating Mexican food, which turns out it's not Mexican food, it's Tex-Mex. But I just thought, what a country. You know, it's like um, we had a chance to go um, one summer to Italy for a family vacation, and it was really wonderful. And, and, I, and about uh, six months later, I was asking one of our daughters, who at the time was about eight years old, I said, what's your favorite place to go on vacation? Because we were trying to figure out another vacation. She said, I want to go to Italy. And I was so impressed that she even remembered that. And I said, honey, why? You know, what, what was it about Italy you liked so much? She said, all of their restaurants have Italian food. <laughs> I said, what? Spaghetti, it's everywhere, which was her favorite food. And she had not equated Italian with Italy. She thought they were totally, you know, it's not that that was Italy's food. It's just, man, all those places in Italy serve Italian food. Mexico, I love Mexico. If I wanted to be a missionary in Mexico, God would be able to work through me and I would be able to do effective mission work with God's Spirit's help. But if I truly wanted to be the most effective missionary I could, I think I would need to know their language and I'd need to know a good bit about their culture. Um, I've been in, in places where not knowing their culture, it's very easy to insult people, for example without knowing it. Um, Becky and I have been in places where children and, and even adults are, it's not polite to touch your face. And I remember we were in one foreign country when one of our children was doing this and some lady walking by took her hand and pulled it down and said, do not do that. Just, I mean, like, sorry. You know, here it's kind of thoughtful, but there it's kind of like, no. Knowing the culture and knowing the language makes a difference in your mission efforts. Now, perhaps the greatest missionary in some ways in the history of the church, recognizing, of course, the Holy Spirit's the missionary. He uses us, okay? But the work of the Apostle Paul was truly uh, something that literally put Christianity on the map. Paul is the principal missionary tool of God uh, for the Greek world that took this expanding Christianity that started out with just those handful of people at the foot of the cross and took the Roman Empire by storm. And Paul was the perfect missionary for the Greek world we discussed last week because Paul understood not only the Greek language but understood the Greek culture. Paul was originally born in Tarsus and kept connections with Tarsus throughout his life. And Paul had the Greek know-how. He could write with Greek metaphors. He could quote the Greek poets. He could quote the Greek playwrights. Paul understood the Greek language and culture. But that's only useful if he also understands the gospel message, right? And the gospel message was a Hebrew message. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. Jesus Christ came in a Jewish faith. Jesus was a Jew. 
And what was special about the Jews as God's chosen people was not merely that the Messiah would come through the lineage, but it was also to the Jews God entrusted his oracles, his scriptures, his words, which would point to Jesus, which would give us not only the ceremonial law that uh, points to Jesus, but the moral law that points to Jesus, the civil law that points to Jesus, like Dr. Bisano talked about. All of the things that we know who Jesus was because Jesus was more than all of those aspects of the law, as Dr. Bisano talked about this morning. Now, that's what the Jews had. But then to understand Jesus as a fulfillment of that, don't you know, you need to understand the Jewish law. And you need to be a Hebrew. And that's what Paul was as well. That's what we're delving with today. So if we put a road map today of where we're going, we're going to first look at the relevant scriptures and bring them back to our memories. And then second, we're going to look at the implications of those scriptures. And then finally, we'll have our points for home and hit the restaurants. <laughs> Unless you're cooking. Which point, raise your hand. We'll be there. Okay. Scriptures, first scripture. Paul's giving his speech in Acts. He's Acts 23. He's speaking to the Jewish crowd, having gotten permission from the tribune. And Paul says the following, I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city. And under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. And was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. The law that Dr. Bisogno talked about, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law, Paul says, I was trained in that at the feet of Gamaliel. I was more zealous for that than any of the rest of you. I am a Jew down to the marrow of my bones. Now, later, Paul's in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling, top legislative ruling body of the Jews. Paul's in front of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is in a fuss over what to do with Paul. Paul knows that some of the Sanhedrin are Pharisees and some are Sadducees. What's the difference? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Paul knows some of them are there. And so in the process, Paul makes this statement of Paul being, in essence, on trial before the Sanhedrin. He says, brothers, I'm the Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. The whole reason I'm on trial right now is because of my Pharisaic beliefs. It's because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, which the Sadducees did not believe in. And by Paul just throwing that out there, it's like throwing a bone in the midst of a bunch of dogs. All of the dogs ignored attacking Paul and all went to fight over the bone. And the commotion arises and Paul's taken back to the barracks because of the riot. Then in Acts 26, Paul's in front of Agrippa, King Agrippa and Festus giving his testimony. And Paul says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Significant words. We'll talk about what they mean. Final passage in Philippians. Paul writes to the Philippian church and says, uh, you know, you may think you've got a lot to boast about. I got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
uh, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Those are the passages. Now, point one, done, passages. Point two, what are the implications I want us to focus on? Well, there are several. Here, here, here's my view of this, my implications. First, Paul moves to Jerusalem early. We don't know how early. We can go back and see at what ages typically Jewish boys were trained, and, and the odds are Paul would have moved there. The, the, the scholars debate. Some want him there real early. Some want him there real late. Realistically, I've read those books. I've looked at those studies. I've read those passages. I've seen the references. Paul probably moved somewhere around third grade for us, for our purposes. He may have been fourth, fifth, sixth grade, something in that time range. Okay? Next, Paul and his family were Pharisees. We're going to spend some good time there in just a minute. Next, Paul trained under Gamaliel. We're going to spend some time there and talk about who he was. Paul was zealous in his faith and he was zealous in his life. Paul took holiness and devotion to God very, very seriously. We'll see that as this unfolds. And finally, Paul actually cast a vote against Christian martyrs. What does that mean? Are we to take it literally or was Paul speaking figuratively? That's actually an issue. Because if he's being literal, which I believe he is, he's using literal words and gives no reason not to believe it, then Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin at that point in time. Because that's the voting body. If Paul's a member of the Sanhedrin, it tells us a little bit more about Paul, which I think really opens up the horizons about Paul some. So we'll talk about that. Now, third point, let's take a look at this stuff on our roadmap. This is uh, where we need to go. We need to understand what this means. Here's a test for everybody. Are you ready for your test? Okay. What is your reaction to this word? Here, you ready? Here it is. Now, you can shout out your reaction or you can give me an indication. But I, I don't want you to sit there. This is not, oh, boy, I'm going to get real holy and think in a Sunday school frame of mind. None of that. Okay? I want your gut reaction. Okay? I want to know viscerally how you react to this word. Good, bad, sweet, sour, indifferent. Okay, you ready? Everybody ready? Here it is. It's going on the screen right now. Pharisees. Blah! I knew I'd get it. Pharisees. Do, do, do you have the same bitter reaction? Do you? Okay. Paul says the following in those passages if we look at them. He says, I lived as a Pharisee. Past tense. I was a Pharisee. I lived as a Pharisee. Before I became a Christian, and Paul, I'm not sure he would have used that word, I became a Christian. Though he was at Antioch a lot, and that's where they were first called Christians. But Paul, that doesn't mean he wasn't a Christian. He'd use it in our jargon today. But back then, I don't think it was a label he would have. Paul was Jewish. He just found the fulfillment of his Jewish faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Was a member of the church of Christ in a global sense. Now, Paul, I was a Pharisee. Do you know what else he says in one of those passages? In the passage before the Sanhedrin when he causes the fight to break out, he doesn't say I was a Pharisee. He says, 
I am a Pharisee. This is Paul as a Christian saying, present tense, I am a Pharisee. And the reason I'm here today is because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, specifically Jesus. So it's interesting. Paul, Paul is a Pharisee. Now, I've got the same distaste when I hear Pharisee. It's kind of like, ugh. And yet Paul's a Pharisee and wears the label and claims it. So who are these Pharisees? What do we know about them? And where do we get our information? Well, we get it from several sources. I've pulled three of the four sources I know about. I don't think there are more than these four, but there may be. Here are three of the four that I want to use today. Number one, we can read about Pharisees in the Bible. I read an excellent Jewish commentary by Jews on Pharisees. And the Jewish writer, scholar, published in Yale University Press, the Jewish scholar says, one of the best places to learn about first century Pharisees is by reading the New Testament. It says most of us who do Jewish studies don't read it. But it's really accurate history about Pharisees. So we can read our New Testaments. Second place, there was a, a, a scholar a historian, a retired soldier who fought in the Jerusalem, in the, in the Israeli-Roman War of the 60s A.D. His name was Josephus. And Josephus was conquered with the rest of the Jews and actually kept alive. And Josephus wrote histories for the Romans to help them understand the Jewish people. And uh, we can read about Pharisees in the writings of Josephus. Uh, final place is in the Talmud. The Talmud are, is a collection of Hebrew writings that were put together somewhere between 200 A.D. and probably about 500, 600 A.D. But they're written accounts of a verbal tradition that had been going on from before the time of Christ. And we've got different versions. We've got a version that came out of Babylon. It's called the Babylonian Talmud. We've got other versions as well. But, but these writings have a lot to say about the Pharisees. The fourth place that I'm not referencing because it doesn't make that much difference is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are a few places that talk about Pharisees as well. But we'll leave that aside. Start with the works of Josephus for a minute because most of you are familiar with the scriptures on this. Josephus says there was a group of Jews priding itself on its adherence to ancestral customs, claiming to observe the laws of which the deity approves. And by these men called Pharisees, the women were ruled. Now, this is not him making a sexist statement. He's just talking in the, vein, in the context of who had control over certain aspects of society at the time. And the Pharisees had these rules and, and ancestral obligations. It were the Pharisees that really fought hard historically to keep Jerusalem and Israel from just becoming Greek. They were Pharisees that, tried, that, that, that were the soldiers even that fought to keep the temple pure. They were the Pharisees that said it's important we not just blend into the Greek culture and the Greek society. It is important that we maintain faithfulness to our heritage and our history. This is consistent with the New Testament. In the New Testament, we read Pharisees who were really, really big on following the ancestral customs and being exclusive. In the New Testament... 
we see Pharisees who were concerned because Jesus is eating with the ungodly. See, they care about this. In the New Testament, they're concerned because the, the, uh, uh, Jesus is not fasting the way they thought he should. In the New Testament, they're concerned and they take offense at things that they think are not fully holy. In the New Testament, they challenge Jesus on the issues of law and custom. And I put sites in your lessons because we don't have time to go through each of these. But this will ring a bell. Remember, they get upset with Jesus' disciples because they walk through the wheat field on a Sabbath and they pick some wheat and eat it. They get upset with Jesus because uh, uh, of the way he's teaching. These Pharisees, Jesus says, they tithe down to the very herbs in their garden. They'll take a tenth of those herbs and give them away. They're that precise in the law. These Pharisees, by outward appearance, seem very holy, seem very pure. Now, Jesus has problems with the Pharisees. Jesus' problems sort of boil down to three different areas that I noticed. Jesus has problems with the Pharisees because some Pharisees put the law over people. The law was of more importance than the people. This is the issue that Jesus confronts when he says, don't you guys realize that you've elevated the Sabbath over taking care of people? The people were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for people. You need to understand the right relationship between the law and people. God's given us the law, not so we have a sword over our head. It's the same principle with holiness. Holiness as out there, not so that, oh, there's this list of arbitrary do's and don'ts that God just decided one day I'm going to put it out there just to make people miserable and keep them in line. It's not that at all. The law has always been there for us. It's, it's something God has given to us to help us live so that our lives will be fuller and holier. i got a teenage daughter in here. And I'm thankful that she realizes this, but oh, I wish teenagers everywhere would. And those of us who are past our teenage years now are old enough to look back and say, ooh, I wish I'd known that. But there are choices that you make in life that can radically change how your life is going to be. And these laws or this, these principles or these guidelines or this moral authority that God's given us is not... Because he just wants to make us dance like puppets on a string. It's because he knows what's best for us and he knows these choices will lead to an abundant life. The, the, some Pharisees didn't have that perspective in good sync. Some second concern of Jesus. Some of the Pharisees were whitewashed tombs. They were real pretty on the outside, but inside they were dead, decaying, rotten bones and flesh third problem jesus had run-ins with some pharisees who thought they were the moral police for everybody else when they ought to be teachers and exemplars now we're going to take a moment with this slide i spent 20 minutes preparing this one picture <laughs> patrolman the moral police i added that word moral Commissioner, originally this was like the commission of Massachusetts. We took Massachusetts out and put Jerusalem down there and put the Star of David in the middle instead of the Massachusetts crest. And then instead of the officer's name, we have Pharisee down at the bottom. 
I went to that much trouble because I want to underscore with you, your principal obligation in your life is not to be the moral authority for your spouse or your neighbor or the person down the street or the person in the other state or the person in the other country. Your principal role is to be the moral authority over your heart. Now, as parents, we have that responsibility for our children. And as a church, we have pastors and leaders who have some responsibility over us. And that's not to say that if your brother sins, you disregard it. Paul will say in Galatians, when someone's in sin, you who are strong, go restore such a brother in a spirit of gentleness. Looking to yourself also, lest you be tempted. But there is a difference between a concern out of love and a harsh moral police mentality. Now, some Pharisees are positively portrayed in Scripture, right? There are some Pharisees who have Jesus over for supper. That's pretty nice. And he goes and eats. And it's not always because they're being mean. They want to learn. There are some Pharisees who warn Jesus, hey, some people are trying to kill you. And while some Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus, other Pharisees are trying to save his life. And then in John 3, we have an incredible Pharisee, a leader of the Pharisees, who comes to Jesus at night. His name was Nicodemus. And it's to a Pharisee that we have an encounter with a Pharisee who came to Jesus asking questions. We have that wonderful statement that Jesus made that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That was spoken to a Pharisee who we think most likely became a Christian because this same Nicodemus brings expensive spices to treat Jesus after his death. And if we read in Acts, Acts chapter 15, verse 5, when the Jerusalem conference is going on, there are Christians in the church who are Pharisees still. And they're the ones who thought, hey, uh, it's fine for Gentiles to come in, but first they need to be Jews, then they can be Christians. They didn't win that vote. God did. But they were there nonetheless. All right. What did the Pharisees believe? Josephus gives us some of those. Josephus, for example, on the afterlife, says Pharisees were as follows. Pharisees believed not only in a resurrection, but believed that there would be rewards for the good and punishment for the bad. Sadducees did not believe this. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were in a constant struggle. Josephus says there were three main groups of, of, of Jews out there, three main sects of Judaism. There were these Pharisees, there were the Sadducees that did not believe in an afterlife, and then there were the Essenes that thought both of them were too liberal, and the Essenes just went off by themselves. They were probably the community that had the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes said, a pox on both of your houses, you're both out to lunch, we're going to stay pure and away from you all. But the Pharisees believed in an afterlife. The Sadducees did not. Pharisees, um, by the way, that's the reason Paul's able to stand up and say to the Sanhedrin, hey, I'm on trial here because I'm a Pharisee. Because I believe in a resurrected Lord. I believe in a resurrection. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees start breaking up into a fight. Because the Pharisees are, well, <laughs> it's a bunch of Sadducees. Now you're trying to make inroads on us because of our beliefs. 
Sadducees, well, this is why you're a bunch of troublemakers. Look, you start believing in a resurrection and now all of a sudden you're all going to be a bunch of Christians. Pharisees, no, no, this, you, you can't like make inroads on it. You can't start arresting us because we believe in a resurrection. And they have the big riot. Josephus also tells us about the Pharisees' views on demons. Unlike the Sadducees who didn't really believe in any demons and hierarchies and things like that, the Pharisees did. The Pharisees believed in demons and angels, and that's why they're Pharisees who are confronting Jesus when Jesus is casting out demons. And everybody says, Jesus has got to be the Son of God. He's casting out demons. Pharisees say, no, he's doing it by the authority of Beelzebub, Satan, superior demon. You see, they believed in the hierarchy of demons and angels. Pharisees, interesting on fate or predestination and free will. Got a young fellow I've been doing some emailing back and forth with on this issue. It's a fascinating subject, and it's one that's been a legitimate questioning issue for a long time. I had someone else sent me an email this week and said, we visited your Sunday school class. We're thinking about coming back, but we got some questions for you. Here they are. We want to know where you stand on. Bum, 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 bum. One of them was this issue. It's a fascinating issue because the, the, the view of the Pharisees was, we believe, Pharisees say, in predestination, but the Pharisees also believed in free choice. God makes some choices, but not all of the choices. It's a real interesting little mix and approach. Now, if we go to the Babylonian Talmud for a moment, we're going to leave the complete works of Josephus. The Babylonian Talmud tells us there were seven kinds of Pharisees at this point in time. Let me lay them out for you. See if you know any of these. Number one, there are people who do right. They're very religious. They do right, but they do it for all the wrong reasons. You know, these, I don't understand why Jesus would call them hypocrites. Oh, yeah, don't, I mean, you can't really throw rocks at what they're doing. They're not, I mean, they're, they're living that moral perfect life, but boy, are they doing it for the wrong reasons. Paul has that problem. Paul in Philippians talks about people who preach the gospel out of emptiness and vain conceit. But Paul says, well, at least Jesus is being preached. There are those, a second group, who do right, but they do it with fake humility. Inside, they're swollen with pride. You know, these are the guys who write the book, Humility and How I Achieved It. <laughs> I'll never forget talking to one of my friends who left an AA meeting. And um, my friend was just trying to get into AA and trying to get adjusted to it. And he asked me to go with him. I didn't know you're not allowed to go if you're like not an alcoholic. So I was just kind of, sure, I'd, I'll go with you if that'll help you go. Um, those are wonderful meetings, by the way. I'm, I thank God that's not a struggle I have, but if it is a struggle you have, those are some wonderful resources to help you with that struggle. And I commend them. But at that, they say the prayer of God help me to accept the things I cannot change, to change the things. Do you all know that prayer? Okay, so we're walking out. My friend says to me, I figured out uh, what's wrong with that prayer, they say. I wanted to say, do you understand that that prayer's been around for a few hundred years and has ministered to like billions of people? 
but I did. And I just smiled and said, oh, you did? He says, yep, I figured it out. There's not a section on humility. Yeah, if they'd have come to me, I'd have written a better prayer because I understand humility. (laughs) Next, those who hurt themselves to do right. Not a good kind of Pharisee. There are Pharisees who will do right to their own hurt and detriment. There are Pharisees who will hurt others to do right. Have you ever met anyone who, in an effort not to lie, proceeds to tell you how trashy you look? You know, there are ways to do right with diplomacy. There are some people who will, in an effort not to gossip, instead say, let's pray for so-and-so. They're having trouble with this and that. Then all of a sudden, they're intercessors in prayer. Gossips. Then, these are the three kinds that are commended in the Babylonian Talmud. Those Pharisees who do right because they should. I mean, God said it, so I'm going to do it. That was commendable. Those who do right out of love, which is the biblical principle as well. John says that we... Uh, our children of God who obey because we love God. And we love God because he first loved us. And then there are those who do right out of fear. I got to tell you, there are some things in my life, I've had opportunities of sin in front of me. And I'd like to tell you, oh, I didn't do that sin because I love God. Or I didn't do that sin because of my duty. But there are a few sins in my life that I can pinpoint that I didn't do because I was scared. I know if I do that, something bad's going to happen. And that's okay. That, that kind of fear can be a healthy motive. Okay? Most important Pharisee belief that Paul kept, and we'll go back. This is still kind of an intro class. As we go through Paul's teaching, we'll trace what was Pharisaical and what was not. But the most important Pharisaic belief he kept that we need to remember was that there is a resurrection of the dead. Now, the most famous Pharisee of Paul's day was Gamaliel, whose feet he studied at. Gamaliel headed up a school, the school of Hillel. Hillel and Shammai were two uh, uh, Pharisees who had schools in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. The school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Shammai was the ultra-Orthodox conservative school. Hillel was a little bit more laid back, a little more pragmatic. He was considered the liberal. Here's an example of a run-in between the two. On the issue of Gentile conversion, should the Gentiles be brought into Judaism? Both believed, theoretically, yes, but Shammai was a bit more bigoted about it than Hillel. So the story is told of a man who comes up to Rabbi Shammai and says, Rabbi Shammai, I will convert, I will become a Jew, if you can Teach me your law while I stand on one leg. You can do that, I'll become a Jew. Shammai takes his stick and beats the guy and says, get out of my face. The same guy goes to Rabbi Hillel. This is the school that Paul went through. And says, I'll become a Jew. If you'll tell me the, teach me the law while I'm standing on one leg. Rabbi Hillel said, 
what you don't want people to do to you, you don't do it to anybody else. Now, that's the whole law. The rest of it's just elucidation, so go study. It's the opposite of the goal. I mean, it's, the, it's a negative way of saying the golden rule. Jesus' golden rule is how you want people to treat you, you go treat them. Hillel just said that it, the same thing in a negative. What you don't want people to do to you, don't do to them. Uh, was he lax or was he pragmatic? I'd say he wasn't lax because he never excused the law, Hillel, and neither did Paul, but he was very pragmatic about it. If an ox falls into a ditch, you could bring the ox out on Sabbath. According to Hillel, that means if your chicken lays an egg on the Sabbath, you're allowed to eat the egg. Shammai said, no, that's work done on the Sabbath. You can't even eat the egg. So he'd throw the egg away. Gamaliel was a student, actually probably the grandson, maybe even the son of Hillel. But he very much was a Hillel-type guy. It was Gamaliel who, when the Sanhedrin are having the big debate about what to do with the, the apostles, in Acts chapter 5, I believe, it was Gamaliel who said the following, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do. Leave these men alone. Let them go. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, you're not going to be able to stop them. You'll only find yourself fighting God. Interesting. Paul didn't follow Gamaliel in that area. Gamaliel in that area, did he? Decided, I guess, at that point he knew more than the teacher. Paul sounds like Gamaliel and Hillel, writing on marriage. I've got that in your text. Let's keep going. The significance of God's vote, of God's, of Paul's vote, excuse me. <clears throat> Though Paul says he cast his vote against the martyrs. The only way Paul had a vote is if he was a member of the Sanhedrin. If Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, he had to have two things. Number one, he had to be 40. And number two, he had to be married. Now, we know Paul's not married, most likely, at the point he's writing his letters to the Corinthians and others. But if Paul's actually been married at some point in time, then some of the things he says about marriage take on a little bit more depth and meaning to me. I always like to get counsel from someone who knows what they're talking about. Okay? And a lot of people have dismissed and written off what Paul has to say about marriage as a guy who clearly was never married. Uh, and I don't think Scripture's so clear on that. Next week, your assignment. In the book, if you've got the book, even if you haven't read anything yet... Just start on page 69, read 69 to 82. That may take us through one week or two, I'm not sure. It's about Paul, the persecutor. We'll talk about the stoning of Stephen. We'll also talk about Paul's conversion. And what I hope you're going to find as we go through this class are these Bible stories that we've learned and studied and read and heard about have great depth in them that we can plumb and still learn more about even if we're PhDs from the greatest seminary in the world. Okay? Here are points for home. Man, Paul had a stud resume. Free publicity for Philip Wilson's book, Resumes They Can't Put Down. But Paul had a stud resume as a Greek, as a Hebrew. I mean, don't you know, when Paul goes to these Greek synagogues, he not only can speak Greek fluently while he's out on the mission field, but they say, hey, who are you? I'm Paul. I'm here visiting. Yeah, where are you from? I'm from Jerusalem. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the famous rabbi. 
whoa, would you like to speak to us? Sure, I'd love to. What a resume. I want to tell you something else here. You got a resume too. You got a stud resume. Because we worship a God who's able to take everything in your life and turn it to good for, you, for his purposes starting right now. I get resumes. I get resumes probably 30 a week. And I don't look at many of them unless they're people I know who somehow flag. I mean, I just get random resumes. But nobody ever puts the bad stuff on there, I've noticed. Resume. Well, I ripped off my last employer and got fired for stealing. I have a temper. I cuss. Run around on my wife. I'm looking for a job where I don't have to work and no one will get upset with me because I'm basically lazy. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. Your resume before God, you can put all of the bad stuff. You can put all of your sin. You can put everything you did bad. You can put down there, I killed a saint of the church. I cast my vote against him. You can put down there, I've been heartless. I have problems with gossip. I envy. I'm very greedy. I have a love for money. You can put down all the bad you want on your resume if it's true. And it doesn't change the fact that that resume is exactly what God needs to use you for purposes that he has planned and designed starting right now. All you got to do is say, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I am, everything I've got, everything I'm not, I'm yours. Next point. Holiness is a good thing. It's good not only in your actions, though, it's good in your heart. And let's try to find the holiness in the heart, too, to go with the actions. I want, oh, I want our church. And by our church, I mean the church. I want our reputation to change. I don't want us to be known as the heartless, cruel police, moral police of the world. I want us to be known as a holy people who love God and see the value in every human being and will give our lives for someone to know Jesus because we love them that much. Now, there's morality with that, but it's with a heart. And final point, measure what we say and what we hear. I like that fellow who sent me the email, said, I want to know where you stand on these seven things before I come to your class again. I like that. But I want to tell you something. I love the passage out of Acts that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they received the message from Paul with great eagerness. And it says they examined the scriptures every, we're missing the bottom tag, day to see if what Paul said was true. That's a good thing. Let's measure what we, I don't agree with everything in this book. Measure what you read. Pray with me. Lord, bless this class today. Bless everyone in here. Grab a hold of their heart with an iron grip and bring them before you for your purposes and put fierce dedication and courage in everyone today to walk out of here more solemnly devoted to you and your purposes. That's my prayer for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.